Science and Technology. Emily Shock. And I'm Zachary Shock, your co host, husband, and number one fan of Emily. Oh, no. cutie. But you know what's not cute? Spooky things. Because it's October and we're a podcast, <laughs> so we have to talk about spook. So, flipping the script, Zach, who are we talking about today? Magenta. Okay. You know, the one. Who helped that uh, Frankenfurter guy, Dr. Frankenfurter, I think it was. You're a nerd. <laughs> and also, you're not even doing it this week. It was a bit. But I'm ching. Now, this week, we're not doing anything particularly spooky. But we are going to talk about a woman who I've been very excited to talk about. And her name is Cecilia Payne Kapashkin. Nice. That's... Not easy. <laughs> it's not very Russian. Well, she was not Russian. Um, you were trying to get through it. <clears throat> I wish we had a but um ching soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> we could just yeah, use anyway. our animals' dollars. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It means that we're homey. It's fine. I guess. Anyway. So, do you know anything about her at all? She's been kind of trendy on Facebook and Twitter as like the, did you know that this woman scientist did this lately? Well, could you shed some light I on sure it? could. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. <laughs> she was born in 1900, uh, born Cecilia Helena Payne in Wendover, England. That Wendover awesome. <laughs> uh, she was born May 10th that year. To Emma Lenora Helena and Edward John Payne. Edward was a London barrister, a fancy lawyer, a historian, no. and also a pretty popular musician locally. Okay. And her mom, Emma, came from a distinguished Prussian family. Ooh. Mm. Uh, Edward died when Cecilia was four, and Emma raised Cecilia and her two siblings totally by herself from then on out. So that's Prussians, uh, not Russians, right? Correct. So like the German yeah. Empire. <laughs> yeah. So she studied in private school for the first several years of her schooling, then went to St. Mary's College when the family moved to London in 1912. She okay. couldn't learn. They didn't have like science or math classes there, you know, like schools do. <laughs> Were they more religious-based classes, or...? I think it was, like, a girl's school where they focused on, like, reading and writing and, like... Etiquette. Yeah. Kind of stuff. That kind of stuff. Uh, but in 1918, she went to St. Paul's Girls' School, which was way more rounded out than St. Mary's College. She actually was super talented in the sciences as well as music. Hmm. And her teacher really wanted her to pursue that. <laughs> and guess who her teacher was? Elvis. Yep. I mean, basically, at the time, it was freaking Gustav Holst. (laughs) 
Like, it's just, like, mentioned in her books. Like, oh, yeah, Gustav Holst taught her. Like, what? <laughs> he wrote the planets. It's, like, in asterisks and just down at the bottom you have to see the footnotes. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> That's on. That's him. We might get copyright takedowns. He urged her to pursue a career in music, but she was like, nah, I'm going into science. So in 1919, the year after, she won a scholarship to Newnham College at Cambridge. And there she studied three things she studied botany, physics, and chemistry. And got bored of botany after a year. Drop that. <laughs> it doesn't really meld with the other two. <laughs> yeah. Like, physics and chemistry you see together a lot. And then, like, yes, I could make a case for botany making sense there. But... Maybe she had her own succulent garden. And was like, <laughs> I need to at least study it for one year. So it was here at Newnham. I think I'm saying that right. I hope I am. Um... <laughs> where she attended a lecture by Arthur Eddington. And this was like the moment that changed her scientific life forever. He had gone on an expedition to the west coast of Africa so that he could take pictures of stars near the eclipse. And like, that was the best vantage point for him to get it. He did this to study, to, to, to test out Einstein's theory of relativity with mm. like, you know, light bending without the light there and all that and... I don't know. Way above my mental pay grade. (laughs) And this is what really sparked her interest in astronomy, which is... That's why she'd be famous, is astronomy. We'll get there. (laughs) Uh, She's quoted as saying about this lecture, uh, The result was a complete transformation of my world picture. My world had been so shaken that I experienced something very like a nervous breakdown. (laughs) So she was basically like, oh my god. Freaking stars. (laughs) And relativity. Ah! Which... It's all there. It's pretty much how I react whenever I go to an observatory, so I get it. (laughs) (laughs) My job is getting to be in one of those whenever I want. Oh, yes. Very much so. She finished (laughs) her study... Okay. She didn't graduate. She finished her studies because Cambridge didn't actually award degrees to women until 1948. So I'm sitting here like, why did they have scholarships for women then? Yeah, or have classes? Like, is a compromise, I guess? <sighs> it's a dumb compromise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so she finished her quote-unquote bachelor's and realized that the only thing she could do in the UK was teach. And not, like, fun physics teaching, but, like, teaching grade school and stuff. Because there's no stars up in the UK. None! None. You don't teach the kid about them if there are. (laughs) So she started looking for grants in America to go and study more there. Hugh Grant, Chris Grant. Is Chris Grant even a grant? Oh. There's probably a Chris Grant out there. (laughs) Just... (laughs) (laughs) So... Her timing could not have been more perfect for this. Harlow Sharpley, he was the director of the Harvard College Observatory. And he had just begun the first graduate program in astronomy there. Including a fellowship, like a group scholarship, to encourage more women to come and work in the observatory. Um, The initial idea was 
to give them sort of the quote-unquote busy work. But Harlow in particular didn't really subscribe to the whole women aren't as smart as men thing. So mm. he gave them more work than that. But that was the way that Harvard agreed to it, to give them, like, the calculations and the looking at the pictures and all that stuff. Yeah. So. Were they also kind of, like, making more out of the busy work than a lot of other people? Like, well, well, the busy work was very intensive. I'll get there. I'll explain what it is. So Adelaide Ames, another female astronomer, she was the first one on this fellowship, and Cecilia was the second in 1923. So part of the work that they would do, there were hundreds and hundreds of these pictures of stars taken in a special fashion that there were spectral lines coming out of the stars. And you could look at these lines and using, I don't know, math... Mm-hmm. <laughs> My rocket scientist cousin is going to make so much fun of me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> using math and stuff, you can look at these lines and you can determine what class this star is. There were seven classes for the spectra of the star, excuse me. So there were seven classes, O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. I don't know. <laughs> O-B-A-F-G-G-M. O-B-A-F-G-G-M. <laughs> I don't know why. I could probably look more into it and figure out what those mean, but all I do know is that O is the hottest, M is the coolest. Is that similar to the uh, where you could put a light up uh, in a really dark room and have those films, um, and it shows the different lights? I know exactly. I know what you're talking about, like yeah. the light spectrum. Well, yeah, totally, because. These are spectral lines, is what they called them. So that's absolutely okay. What it was, just way far away in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was a big chunk of what they did. Is they went through all these photos and they classified the spectral lines of these stars. Uh, Sharply eventually persuaded Cecilia to write a dissertation for a doctorate. You know, get her thesis out there. Which big deal for a woman. So they had even graduate and doctoral stuff even though they didn't give out Well, this degrees. was in the U.S. I'm not sure. Oh, okay, okay. Then... That that was at Cambridge in the U.K. I'm gonna look up right now. Yeah, Harvard started giving degrees to women in the 1870s. Okay. So... That uh, makes sense, then. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was like, come on! Like, <laughs> just do just it. Let him do it! So she decided to use these pictures for her dissertation. What she did was around the same time Indian astrophysicist Meghnad Saha developed this ionization equation, which is more math. <laughs> <laughs> but basically she could take the information she got from these spectral lines, put it into this equation, and, quote, relate the ionization state of a gas in thermal equilibrium to the temperature and pressure. Layman's terms. <laughs> <laughs> She was able to use the spectral line classifications to figure out what and how many gases are in those stars. So what gases were in the Mm -hmm. thing and and how much? Yeah, and like the ratio of 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 each each gas that's in it. Wow. Yeah. So she did this with a bunch of stars, including our own sun. She found silicon, carbon, other common metals in the sun spectrum were that about the relative same amount as Earth. 
Cool. That's exactly what science thought. So, yay, good thesis. You found it right. But she also found out that helium and hydrogen were way, 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 way more abundant in the sun than they are on Earth. Mm-hmm. Like, hydrogen by a factor of a million. <laughs> so, like, there's lots of hydrogen in the sun. Bad. <laughs> White male scientists were like, that's not what we think. <laughs> we think the Earth and the sun are basically the same thing, except the sun's always on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just let the eternal flame just get way out of control. Way too hot. <laughs> so she's putting down her findings. She writes her thesis, sends it in for the initial review. And one astronomer, Henry Norris Russell, he sort of sat her down and convinced her, like, look, that's just not, there's no way this can be right. This is, everyone knows that the sun and earth have the same makeup. So <laughs> just don't put that in there or you're not going to get your thesis approved. So she listened to him because he was one of the reviewers of her thesis. Yeah. And what she did is she described the result as spurious. So basically, I got this crazy wackadoo result that's just so obviously wrong, so I guess I did something wrong because of my dumb woman brain. (laughs) Because, like, it was a very definitive thing. Yeah. That these stars had a crap ton of hydrogen Mm -hmm. so but whoops did it wrong and then this is the part that really grinds my gears mr russell mr nah don't write that it's wrong you'll get laughed at four years later published a paper (laughs) that said guys guess what the sun has a crap ton of hydrogen in it oops and he sort of said like yeah, one time the Cecilia girl was looking into it. So I looked into it, and look what I discovered. I'm so angry about it. There, Her thing would have still been published. Yeah, but her said, I did it wrong, and it's not like anyone's looking up Cecilia Payne's thesis. Yeah, okay. Um... He just had and, more clout about him. And obviously she had said hers was... Yeah, she was show. like, she, whoops. Yeah, she wouldn't have tried to push her <laughs> yeah. thesis. So that makes me so mad. He was he was credited with that discovery for a really long time. Mm. Uh, but the reason Cecilia has been really big on social media lately is that it has come out in a bigger push. Like, mm. y'all, <laughs> <laughs> look at this paper four years earlier. And also her autobiography where she says... This guy told me not to do it, and then he did it. Oh. It makes me so mad. Yeah. Regardless, even with her spurious findings, she was awarded her PhD in 1925. The first person to earn a PhD in astronomy from what would eventually become a part of Harvard. It was Radcliffe College, but Hmm. they joined together. So, just the first person. First person, person ever. Because, wow. like, they had just be- created this graduate program. Nah. So, she freaking did it. So, I want to make a quick stop over to some personal life stuff. One story from her autobiography that I thought was pretty cool. While she was studying, I couldn't find... I look very hard, but I couldn't find if it was, like, during grade school or college or thesis or what. But... She did a study on the efficacy of prayer by grouping her tests into two groups. 
praying really, really hard to do well on group A <laughs> and not praying at all for group B. <laughs> and she did better on group B. Oh. So she became agnostic. She's scienced <laughs> God. I'm sure there's been a lot of that. Uh, but... <laughs> but I just think it's funny that she wrote about that. <laughs> 1931, so six years after her PhD, she became an American citizen. And in 33, she went on a tour of Europe like a... I don't know if it was like a vacation or a science tour or what. But on this tour, she met Russian-born astrophysicist Sergei Gaposhkin. Uh, they fell in love, and she helped him get a visa, and then they got married in March of 1934 and had three kids. Hmm. Did um, they ever get a MasterCard? Okay, because I said she got a visa. I'm moving on. <laughs> so after her thesis, Cecilia kept studying, learning, teaching, all that. She didn't just do the thing that a lot of people wanted learned women to do, which was get your degree, get married, have kids, go away forever. Yeah. She kept going even with the marriage and the three kids. Wow. She studied high-luminosity stars so that she could put together the structure of the Milky Way. She surveyed all stars brighter than the 10th magnitude, so like super bright stars. Made over 1,250,000 observations of variable stars with the help of her assistants, but still. Yeah. Made a further 2 million observations when she started including Magellanic clouds in those. So she was able to put together the paths of stellar evolution, you know, from the little... The new ones that explode in a supernova, and then they get smaller, 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 and they explode again. So she took all of these observations, and she released her second book, Stars of High Luminosity, in 1930. And all subsequent work on variable stars have been based on that book. Nice. She did a good job. (laughs) So, did she... Four years later, he obviously wrote his thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Did she know he wrote that? And like she had to have. Like, at what point did she hear about it and then not do anything? Oh my god! Okay. Side note: I I control F'd Russell in her Wikipedia page to see if I could find the answer. Mm -hmm. And in 1976, she won the Henry Norris Russell Prize. (laughs) And that's just some irony right there. (laughs) Anyway, I mean. She must have she must have known they were all in the same circle. Yeah, it's just uh I'm just curious what kept her from But what was she going to do? No guys, I did it first. She's already on thin ice as a woman in science. Anyway, so through all this research, all this writing, all of this super big discovery stuff, she was teaching at Harvard the whole time, but she didn't have a job teaching at Harvard? <laughs> she was just in the shed with she, she <laughs> was she was Shapley's technical or Sharpley's technical assistant. Okay. That taught classes. She did that till 1938. And the whole time Sharpley was trying to get her a position. And fi- it wasn't until she was finally like, okay guys, I'm going somewhere else that will pay me more. Give me a title. <laughs> that Sharply finally convinced them to get her the title of astronomer. Still not professor, but something. She became a fellow of the American Academy of Arts in 43, Hmm. which upped her position a little bit. 
And finally, classes were put in her name as a professor rather than, you know, being recorded at Sharpley's class and then she would show up and do everything. (laughs) Uh, 1945, she finally became professor. Nice. No. Mm. 1945, they finally had her name in the program. Oh, okay. And then in 54, so nine years later, Mm. Donald Menzel took over for Sharpley as the director of the observatory and immediately was like, you need to make her a professor. You need (laughs) to. I I was afraid it was going to go the other direction. (laughs) But it still took two years. Yeah. I mean, that's bureaucracy for a school for you. And so in 1956, she became the first woman to be promoted to full professor from within the faculty of Harvard's Arts and Sciences. Hmm. So not necessarily the first woman professor, but the first one who, like, worked her way up. Yeah. Into there. (laughs) Wasn't just hired off the street. Yeah. Well, not hired off the street, but yeah. (laughs) So she kept teaching. And doing all her research. In 1966, she retired, became an emeritus professor of Harvard. <laughs> Basically means... Show up whenever you want. <laughs> no, it's not even that much. It's like, you don't work here anymore, but we'll still call you professor to be, like, nice. as an honor. It's an honorific. No. More than a title at this point. Yeah, I guess you want to be called professor if you were done. Yeah, but if they make you an emeritus, yeah. then you're just professor forever. But even after she retired from teaching, she kept researching as a member of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Okay. She did that forever. And she edited the journals and books published by Harvard Observatory for a total of 20 years, including some years after she retired. (laughs) (laughs) And after years and years of working and researching, she never really slowed down until she passed away December 7th, 1979. Hmm. Leaving a legacy of trailblazing women in <laughs> astronomy. And also she had a lot of students that went on to do even more great stuff. Both in astronomy and gay rights and, <laughs> and all kinds of stuff. So she left a great uh, a, a great legacy and she discovered what the sun was made of and Russell didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Russell told her she was wrong. <laughs> uh. Oh, it just made me so mad. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Cecilia Pankaposhkin. Very nice. Cecilia, you're looking at stars. You're shaking the status quo, baby. Why? Because I'm funny. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a poll up on Twitter and... The next. <laughs> is Emily funny? Yes or no? And if you say no, I will cry. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Make it a compliment sandwich, guys. <laughs> well, I think that does it for us this week. Just a reminder, we're a part of the Pocket Podcast Network, bringing quality content right to your pocket. Check out other shows on the network, like No Dice, like Home Viewing. And I mentioned those two in particular, because coming up in a few weeks, we're going to be doing Show Swaps. And I will be on a special guest episode of No Dice, where we play Lasers and Feelings. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> and Zach and I will be hosting an episode of Home Viewing about our favorite movie, but we won't tell you what yet. No spoilers. You'll have to you'll have to tune in to see. Anyway. Follow us at Steampunks Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can follow me personally at shocking underscore awesome. 
And thanks to the band The Crips for the use of their song Marie Curie for our intro and outro. I'm Emily. And I'm Zach. And keep flying, you beautiful, majestic, steam powered horses. Alex, you love Harry Potter, right? Yeah. Want to listen to a new Harry Potter podcast? No. Oh. But Sorted is not a Harry Potter podcast, but instead a podcast about everything else viewed through the lens of Harry Potter. Cool. What does that mean? It means we're going to sort things. Ash Ketchum's a Slytherin. Shrek's a Gryffindor. Your dog is a Hufflepuff. And all Ravenclaws are robots. Come check out Sorted, not a Harry Potter podcast. On the Pocket Podcast Network. Pocket Podcast Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.